Please open in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verse 2. All of you are like, ah, this guy again. Where's Rich? Uh, He'll be back next week, and we're going to actually kick off a new sermon series uh, once he gets back. This text this morning ought be for us a trembling matter. And it ought to be a trembling matter because Christianity has a disease. Now, understand, I'm not speaking now of genuine Christians. I am speaking for a moment about American Christianity. Because American Christianity includes today an impressive collection of worthless falsehoods and undevoted pagans. And I know those are strong words. It has become a name separated from a meaning, a merely political force, a hypocritical system of morality seldom kept by those who espouse it. This so-called Christianity of the 20th century is on its very deathbed, decaying before our eyes. And it crumbles for this singular reason. It does not know Jesus. This Christianity has forgotten her Christ, has no regard for his work. She knows not his voice. And American Christianity continues to reassure countless millions of people by teaching that anyone who says they are a Christian definitely is one. That is completely a lie. Calling yourself a Christian does not make you a Christian. If Christianity knew its Christ, then it would be vibrant in its holiness and devotion to the truth, yet it is not. It is filled with so-called churches completely devoid of the presence of Christ. And this is why we ought tremble at our text today, because it pierces through our hardened souls, revealing our disinterest in heart, in genuinely knowing Christ. Christianity has before seen such an offensive ignorance of its Christ in the years prior to the Reformation. You see, in that time, Christ had become obscured and his offices robbed by deceitful men. No longer could burdened and weary men come freely to Christ. Christ was made to be distant from us, pushed away, and a new mediator was invented to fill Christ's role, one who would distribute grace on his behalf. Mary, blasphemously called the one full of grace. So too did the Pope intercede, and also priests. Christ's graces became a good foundation, but ultimately insufficient without human cooperation in righteousness. And so to supplement our unrighteousness, because we sin over and over, special ceremonies were devised, extra-biblical sacraments, even indulgences, the promise of grace for money that perhaps maybe we could squeak over the line at least into purgatory for a little bit. Scripture obscured completely. It's Savior distant. The purity of the gospel was at risk. The very heart of Christianity under siege, but the Lord working by his providence used faithful men committed to Holy Scripture to combat these doctrines of Satan. The reform of Christianity sparked in the West, prompting a return to Christ and his gospel of grace. The Reformation recovered Scripture as the only reliable ground for Christianity, and and that's what we talked about last week. But it also taught of Christ, the only mediator between God and man, and alone the sufficient Savior of the world, to see that he alone grants eternal life by means of faith alone, and all of this is given by the grace of God alone, to the glory of God alone, all according to Scripture alone. 
Church, observe the undercurrents of our age. The greatness of Christ has once again become obscured in our culture. For now, he is only a political revolutionary, a champion for the oppressed. He's a moral fire hose, insightful and intelligent. You know, he can help you feel all free and spiritual inside. Just pray this prayer and your life will be so happy. You can write hashtag blessed at the end of your Instagram posts. Listen, I don't care who you are. I don't care if you've been a Christian since you were in diapers or if you had a dramatic salvation experience last month. If you have been fooling yourself with this utter nonsense, you are no Christian at all. Saints, this should rile us up that our infinite and majestic Messiah has in this day been so cheapened. He's now a trinket to wear around your neck, a good luck charm, and that's all. Christian soldier, pull out your shield, strap on the sword of the Spirit, and stop these flaming arrows of deceit in their tracks. These are all but lies, and they mask the true glory of the true Christ. So this morning, let's consider who Scripture says our Lord and Savior is, not who American culture says he is. May the Spirit of God lay him bare before us. May he give us eyes to see his divine and excellent glories. May he cut through the cultural fog that fills our minds with silly nonsense and obscures the Lord. And may we see the value, the value of Jesus what our hearts learn to delight in him. Our aim today is that we would learn to forsake all things that by any means we may possess Christ. Let's read our text today, Philippians chapter three, verse two through nine, and then we will pray. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people, uh, uh, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own which comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we need your spirit, Lord, to convict our hearts of the way in which we have so allowed the world to run free. Lord, we know not who Jesus is. We are so hardened to him, so filled with meaningless things. We need the spirit of the Lord God, we need you to send him to cut us down, to turn our eyes to Jesus, to cause us to see his surpassing worth and value. And so, Lord, work through your word this morning. Convict us and reveal your son to us this very morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, first, let's consider the background to our text Paul is the author of Philippians, and he is writing to the saints in Philippi from a prison cell. And he begins this chapter with a string of imperatives or commands in verse 2. Verse 2 says this, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. There's not, okay, so I need to give some background here. I would love to spend tons of time on verses 2 and 3 because there's lots of good stuff here. I'm just going to do a quick summary overview because that will get us to the, the bulk of our text this morning. But just know, there are things I'm intentionally not talking about here that are worth looking into on your own time. 
To summarize kind of what Paul is saying here, he's warning about a grave threat to the church. Those who reject the gospel of grace. The Greek word here translated as mutilate the flesh sounds very similar to the word for circumcision. The ends almost rhyme. Very, very similar. And so what Paul is saying is that the Jews who are physically circumcised oppose the gospel by teaching a righteousness based on works. And Paul is warning about them, forcefully opposing this twisted teaching. Paul explains in verse 3, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So there's a contrast here. There's the false circumcision, just those who mutilate the flesh. But the true circumcision are those who worship by the Spirit of God and glory or boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. So that means that no longer by temples or rituals or ceremonies or circumcision do God's people approach him. Now we worship by the Spirit of God. And we glory in Christ Jesus, not ourselves. Then he says this critical line, a true circumcision party puts no confidence in the flesh. And and it's on this point that the apostle will pause for a moment and expound, seeking to bring a heavenly clarity to an issue which so plagues mankind. You see, the chief error of man-made religion is this, to see ourselves as an essential element in our salvation. Paul is going to go on and just totally refute this idea. He is going to expose the debased thinking of such ideas. And so turn to verse 6 and read here what Paul says. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul begins here by shielding the Philippians against such false teachers, by first explaining his own misplaced confidence in the flesh prior to his conversion. This is important to get. No human can present himself acceptable before the Lord by himself on his own terms. Not one of us. A personal zeal for righteousness does not restrain the wrath of the Lord. He starts by saying here, if literally anyone in all of humanity had the slightest chance of possibly being accepted by God because of their own life and status, it was he, Saul of Tarsus. It was going to be this guy. He literally says, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul has more. And then he lists seven items that were by many highly esteemed. They were the items that gave men a confidence in the flesh, though a confidence misplaced. First, Paul states that he was circumcised. It was right to be circumcised in accordance with scriptural commands. By this, he's saying this man nor his family were strangers to God's people. He could trace his lineage from himself all the way up to Abraham because he was of the people of Israel and also of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, the tribe of Benjamin was no just mucky-schmuck tribe. This was the tribe from which King Saul came. This was the tribe that stuck with David's uh, kingly lineage, remained in submission to it even all throughout the divided kingdom period. Paul was the epitome of a Hebrew. If you had a dictionary with Hebrew in there, Paul's face would be the first thing that you would see. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. But not only was Paul born into God's people, he was pure in his perfect devotion. He was a Pharisee. Now, when we hear the word Pharisee, everything that's conjured up is what Jesus said about the Pharisees, and that's right and good. But it is good for us to note who the Pharisees really were. were. What was this group of people known as culturally? These men were the conservative fundamentalists of Israel. That's who the Pharisees were. They separated themselves from the other Jews because the other Jews didn't take God's word seriously enough. Well acquainted with the law, 
They kept its precepts to a T. In other words, Paul is saying, I was a Bible-believing Jew. He was zealous for God, zealous for God, persecuting the church, thinking them blasphemous because they said that Christ, a man, was God. Well, he will state you know, in lots of places that he did all these things in ignorance. No person could look at Saul of Tarsus and say, yeah, he was an undevoted guy. No, everyone acknowledges this man's devotion. And then Paul caps off this whole list with the statement that makes our skin crawl a little bit, makes us incredibly uncomfortable to hear. He says, with regard to the law, I was blameless. Blameless. Paul was no adulterer. He was no idolater. His life and conduct were externally blameless. While inwardly his heart was dead, he worked hard to externally keep those parts of the law. And so if there was a man on this green earth who could find favor with God by his status, if there was one who could be accepted because of his intentions and his diligence and his devotion, it would be Paul. But look at what he says in verse 7. Verse 7, he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. This is a fantastic verse. The false teachers who demanded that Christians be circumcised in order to be made right with God totally missed this. All the false teachers of any age who skew the gospel miss this. Paul, the image of devotion and zeal, once missed this truth. All the gains found in being a religious man. All the Jews' expectations that such a man would be made right with God, all his reputation and his status and his identity from birth upwards, his entire life he regarded as loss to gain Christ. The word loss here is only used in one other book in the Bible. It's the book of Acts, twice. And it's used in this context, shipwrecks. In a shipwreck, Everything was lost. Same word being used here. All this conservativeness and zeal and strict righteous living, these things were rotting at the bottom of the ocean for the sake of Jesus. Because Jesus was better than all the best parts of Paul. But Paul is not, he's not settled with such a tame description of his attitude. So he burst forth bursts forth in verse 8 and says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I count everything as loss. Not just his status, not just his own righteous works, not just the things he's whipped up, all things. Everything, really? Everything? That's kind of a tall order, Paul, to give up everything for Christ. But I ask you, baptized, Bible-believing, conservative American Christian, do you, like the false teachers and Paul once did, do you miss that Jesus is worth the entire world? Do you realize that he himself is worth all the riches in heaven and earth? So many people, so many people claim to know Jesus because it's popular to know Jesus. We are applauded when we say we love Jesus. And so many people think themselves Christians because they have been told they are a Christian but listen, church, the Christian is not the man who sits in his seat, turns over and sees the guy who's only been here two times a month and says, oh, I've been here three times a month. I'm the real Christian. It's not the man who looks at his coworkers who are worldly and says, well, better than they are. I don't swear as much as they do. Churches tell hundreds of so-called converts that they don't need to fear the wrath of God anymore because they once walked on stage during an Easter service. Who is a genuine Christian? 
A genuine Christian is the one who considers everything in this world to be a rotting shipwreck because of the surpassing worth of Jesus, because he is so much better than anything in this world. That is the Christian. And our churches in America have been far too quick to slap the label Christian onto people who are running straight for hell's fire. A low commitment magic prayer has become the standard of what makes a Christian a Christian. It doesn't matter. Such a person may have said a prayer when they were three but have no concern for holiness. That's okay. They may imitate the world's morality in every way, look no different than the pagan living next to them. But who can separate them from the love of Christ anyways? I mean, they they said that when they were three. The Holy Spirit here gives us a frighteningly high bar in this text. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. In order. A word that indicates purpose. Paul is saying he suffered the loss of everything. He considers everything rubbish so that he may gain Christ. In other words, only the person who gives up the world will gain Jesus. Church, we need to be awakened in our hearts for a love for the Savior. We need to grasp at the edges of his cloak. More worth has Jesus, says Paul, than all the world's best charms. Christ is worth 10,000 treasures. More value is he than all the world's most precious things. But we know that it's it's these silly little knickknacks that Christianity has become absolutely obsessed with. We love little trinkets of worldliness, and we have so forgotten the value of Christ Jesus, our Lord and God. Brothers and sisters, when Christians only gather on Sundays to enjoy some music and a compelling speech, Christ is not valued. When the bloody and wrathful substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus is blatantly disregarded, and replaced by a loving God who accepts you for you, Christ is not valued. When the ministry of the church becomes gathering more and more butts and seats instead of the gospel that calls you to die to yourself and repent of your sin, Christ is not valued. When sermons become living your best life now, and how to rid yourself of all suffering, Christ isn't even understood, let alone valued. When the fear of being too divisive and not relevant to a new generation causes churches to be silent on the issues of abortion or homosexuality or any of the idols of our age, Christ is not valued. And when sports or the big game is more important to God's people than gathering with the saints singing with one another, hearing the word preached, and partaking of the Lord's Supper together, Christ is not valued. Church, slay your desires for such things. Put them to death. We are to give up the things of the world, not pander to them. Yet that's all Christianity has been doing for decades now, giving the world what it wants in order to call more people Christians in their numbers reports. Churches continue to lure people in with worldly things. Then American churches will continue to foster a love and delight in the world in their hearts. This is what we must offer. Christ Jesus and him crucified. We cannot soften our Lord. We cannot dilute him. And Lord forbid we ever replace him with our own deeds, intentions, or desires. We must pause and ask the question, how have we gotten here? How, how has our Christian culture so lost the value of Jesus? I think we struggle to rightly value for at least two reasons, maybe more, but at least these two. One, we don't really know who Jesus is. And two, our hearts love this world far, far too much. First, we have forgotten who our Savior is. 
Paul says that he counts everything a loss for Jesus Christ, and we wonder, who is this Christ that someone would give everything up for him? Well, consider Scripture's testimony about our Christ. Jesus is the creator, the creator of all things, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, whether visible or invisible things. All things were made through him and for him. Christ Jesus is the glorious purpose for which all things were made. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, the image of the invisible God, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is omnipotent. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the I am, the one who led his people out of slavery in Egypt. He is the object of Old Testament prophecies and types. Being in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself. God Almighty humbled himself below us. He took the form of a servant. He dwelt among us, and he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. He made purification for sins and is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. He is the one mediator between God and man, the fulfillment of all the offices of Israel, the once for all prophet, the high priest that will never die and the king of kings and lord of lords. He is the single sufficient sacrifice, the new veil by which we may approach the throne of grace. And God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Brothers and sisters, our Lord is magnificent. There is absolutely no one like him We sing the song, all glory be to Christ our King. Indeed, all glory be to Christ our King. And like doubting Thomas, when he has manifested to us in his word, would we fall to our knees in worship and cry out, my Lord and my God. He is so infinite and boundless and incomparable. And in Christ there is perfect forgiveness for all your sins the ones you've done in the past and the ones you'll do in the future, all cleansed in him. In him is endless joy. He's so precious. Oh, that our soul would behold him and worship him. Yet, notice, Christian, how diminished our hearts are and how difficult it is for us to be roused to an appreciation for Jesus. They're narrow, pinched, crowded out by other commonplace pleasures and concerns. We struggle to rightly value Jesus because we don't know him, but also because we delight far too much in this world. Paul's in prison when he writes this. He says, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. Paul demonstrated he's serious. He's, he's in prison. He has lost all things. He's, he's been beaten, rejected, tortured for the cause of Christ, and indeed he would one day die for this Jesus. Yet we look at that and we, we feel the sense of, well, that's kind of extreme. And not that we shouldn't do that, but that's not for the normal Christian. We're not all going to do that. Uh, it, it's kind of outlandish. But listen, it's not. Paul's attitude is not odd. It's not unique. It's not, it's not special. It is the attitude that all Christians should have. We should all suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Because of Jesus. The word translated rubbish here is a cleaned up version of this word. Quite literally, this word means human excrement. Rubbish is filth, refuse, literally the dirtiest and foulest of things. By using such a profane word, he reaches outside his prison wall, points at everything that crowds our overstuffed hearts and says, what crap, lose it all. Lose it that you would gain Christ. We need to realize, church, our hearts have been stained by the world. They've been infiltrated 
by wicked schemes of Satan. And we cannot afford any longer, to, it, it, we cannot afford to deceive ourselves into thinking that they're not. Be honest. Your affections love this rundown garbage heap of sojourning. We delight in meaningless waste that passes away like the wind. Now, a church like ours is quick to state worldliness is despicable to us. We reject such things. Yet who of us can say that their eyes are always fixed firmly on Christ? Who of us turns not their head if even for a moment to glance at Vanity Fair? Friendship with the world is enmity with God, Scripture says, but, continue, or, but, but consider what if friendship with the world doesn't only mean rejecting the political left? We are easily fooled into thinking we're not worldly because we stand ourselves and oppose worldliness in a couple categories. Good, oppose such evils, oppose those categories. I'm not saying not, but remember this, Christian, the world isn't that which is overtly evil. The world is that which draws your attention away from the Savior. We have far too long been lulled into compromising our heart's affections, splitting their love. We have to admit and confess that we've been darkened by sin, dulled, trained over years and years and years to gawk at lackluster toys of Satan. It has condensed our heart's capacity for genuine joy in heavenly things. Brothers and sisters, we have allowed ourselves to become far, far too distracted by silly toys. We react so strongly and so profoundly against overt and profane horrors in our world, but the subtle and subversive things of culture that have slowly infiltrated our affections We've given them free reign without challenge. We must, church, identify what it is that draws our affections most. Is it money? Is it success? Is it sex? Is it movies and TV? Is it comfort? Safety, perhaps? Sin itself, maybe, is alluring to you. What about friendships? Reputation? Perhaps even family? Not all of these are inherently wicked. That's not what I'm saying. But listen, all of these things are worth losing that you would know Christ Jesus, our Lord. What does Scripture say? Deny yourself. Deny your desires. Pick up your cross and follow him. Confront your own heart, Christian. What do you love more than Jesus? Turn your gaze off of it and turn your eyes on Christ your Lord, this is our sin. We prize things above their value, but listen, you can never overvalue Jesus. He is an endless stream of abundant graces and gifts, able to calm our restless souls and cleanse our wicked hearts. What earthly thing even comes close to this? What earthly thing can satisfy your heart even for a day? What do you play with? In your free time, what do you spend your energy and devotion on? Why would you want anything but perfect rest and lasting satisfaction and the worship of your Savior to fill your heart? All the, all the many good things in our life are but gifts from God. They belong to Him. They don't belong to you. And so when they cause you to pull your eyes down from Him, and focus on them. We're, we're misunderstanding the point of these gifts. Gifts from God ought to cause your eyes to be lifted upwards in praise and adoration, not draw them away in idolatry. Perhaps the Lord should take away our comforts, our country, our freedoms, and our safety, that we would learn what is really of surpassing and eclipsing value. It is Jesus all the best parts of your life, he is so much better than them. He is God Almighty. And he created all the things that you most love. We're obsessed with dirt 
when a buffet table of joy stands before us. Know that the throne of your heart will not be shared. You cannot serve more than one master. So pray, Lord, smash our hearts, crush them, grind off the parts infatuated with the world. Everyone in our world says following Jesus is so easy. It's just so easy. You know, that's all. You just gotta, you just gotta, you know, say you like Jesus. But listen, being a Christian is so, so costly. It requires your entire life. But oh, the sweetness of losing that life. It's worth it, church. It's worth it because Jesus is worth obtaining. Consider the words of this hymn that we sing regularly. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God, all the vain things that charm me most I sacrifice them to his blood. The song ends, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. We sing that regularly, but rarely do we understand the weightiness of such words. The rich man who followed all God's commandments was unwilling to give up his riches to follow Christ. Are you? Many of you are perhaps thinking, I know I need to feel this way, but I just don't, and I don't know how to. Yes, it's impossible. The heart is filled to the brim with worldly, temporal things, and a heart that's filled like that will never desire him. And this is why Jesus said it is more difficult for a rich man to enter heaven than for a camel to enter through the eye of a needle, because we are all so delighted and entertained by our worldly trinkets. You know what Jesus said? He looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Beg the Lord to cripple your heart, church. Cry out for the spirit of the living God to remove your love for this world and crush it and demolish it. Spend this very evening on your knees in repentance. Ask for God to cleanse you and expand Spell your love of rubbish and do this every single day until God has banished every scent of worldly desire from your heart. That is the call of the life of the Christian. With that in mind, let's continue on to verses 9 through 10. Verse 9 says, and be found in him. Sorry, not 9 through. Oh, yeah, 9 through. Nope, just 9. Sorry. And be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is the key of Christianity, that elusive key which unlocks the door of righteousness, salvation, and eternal life. It is the thing that all false religions and teachers strive after but miss. People strive after a righteousness of their own, perhaps says the fool, I can sufficiently be acceptable and righteous to my deity. Listen, either the fool knows not the meaning of the word righteousness or else has a wimpy God. The God who speaks, who exists, who isn't made of wood or stone or man's vain imagination is a holy God. And it is this holy God who haunted Martin Luther's every, ever thought 500 years ago. The monk had devoted his life to purity and holiness and yet was utterly terrified of the God who was three times holy. Spending hours a day confessing the darkness of his heart, Luther knew what so many in our world are too hardened to realize. No man could ever be accepted by such a holy God. His iniquities were too severe to stand in his awful presence. Woe am I, cried the prophet, a man of unclean lips. Listen, more likely are all of us to overestimate our righteousness than our wickedness. The Bible tells us that the wicked will not stand on the day of judgment. And this is a terrifying but sobering thought. There are likely many in this room who are not saved. Who either reject Christ outright or think themselves a Christian for the wrong reasons. 
you need to know this. You are dreadfully sinful. And the wrath of God approaches you. It comes upon you. The arrow of God's wrath is aimed at your heart. And what may you do to avoid such a calamity? Can you go back to your youth and live in perfect obedience to God's laws? Romans 3 says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one does good, no one seeks for God, not even one. Do you think that your attendance at church or your knowledge of Bible verses or your baptism will help you? They will not. Do not deceive yourself into thinking a merciful God will accept me. He knows my heart. Consider what Paul had just said. If anyone has grounds for confidence at him, but all your good intentions, your ordinances, your righteous deeds are literally garbage. They will land you in hell if you trust in them. Lose your life, your efforts, your strivings, and only then will you find what you need. Jesus, salvation is by faith in Christ alone and by a turning away from sin and a turning away from the things of the world. In Jesus, there is a flood of blessed forgiveness and mercies unending. Oh, how kind he is, how beautiful a savior, how merciful a Lord. Give up the world that you flirt with every single day and be found in him. To the man who turns from all his heart's idols, casting himself by faith on Christ, is given a righteousness from God that depends on faith. It is not a righteousness earned by you. It is a righteousness received by you. This is actually an incredibly critical distinction. Genuine Christianity recognizes that we'll never have our righteousness, not, not by anything. Our, our, the chance for us to be righteous is shot. We do not earn righteousness. We receive righteousness. And our faith is the instrument used to receive this alien, foreign perfection. For those found in him, which is kind of a Pauline catchphrase talking about being unified uh, with Christ by faith, those found in him have this reckoned to their account, the perfections and obedience of Christ himself. Not their own righteousness or credit, but Jesus's. Just like a man, once he gets married, can take all the debts of his bride, paying off those debts and giving his bride an excess of credit, so too does the bridegroom of heaven take the sin debts of his bride. He pays them in full on the cross that she may be debtless, free, and clothed in white garments, counted as perfectly righteous. The one who counts his own life as rubbish will find Christ, and oh, how much sweeter he is, how blessed is his forgiveness, and how light is his burden. This promise of righteousness based on faith is why we echo the phrase sola fide, faith alone. The question, though, is why any of this? Why would God reach down and do any of this? We are worms created from the dust of the ground, and we thought we could defy the living and awesome holy God. None of us deserve to be saved. Not a one of us. All of us should be in hell right now. Why would God do any of this? Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, well-known verses, says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Why did God send a Savior? Why does faith alone works? Because God was gracious and for no other reason. You have been saved because he was kind and for his good pleasure. Sola gratia, grace alone. And all this, not for your glory. That's why it's by grace. It's not, not about us, not for us. It's for him, soli deo gloria, glory to God alone. And this whole system of salvation hinges on but one thing, Jesus and Jesus alone, solus Christus, by Christ alone. Ephesians 1 tells us that those in Christ by faith are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing is conferred to you only in Jesus. Outside of him, there is no spiritual blessing. So if you are not found in him by faith alone, as this text says, you have absolutely no standing before the Father. And hear this, no other mediator, no other mediator 
will cause you to be accepted by the Father. No priest will declare you righteous. No man absolves you of sin. No prophet can provide an alternate route through laws and ordinances and worthiness. No pope has this power. Not even an angel from heaven can proffer perfect righteousness to sinful man. Only by Jesus alone may men be acceptable to the Father. And teachers saying anything else are false teachers, wolves. Rebuke them sharply with the word of God and do not yield to them even for a moment. Believe Jesus when he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus alone, Jesus alone, that's it. If you try it without him, you're condemned. And to supplement his work with your own is to look in Christ's face and say, you died for no purpose. God's grace was communicated in Christ. The object of our faith is Christ. It's all about Christ, church. Behold your Savior in his glory. Brothers and sisters, instead of regularly meditating on the news or obsessively predicting the meaningless drivel of next week's episode or in scrolling and scrolling and scrolling endlessly on social media, regularly return to the work of Jesus done for believers. Let him be the focus of your days. Cry out in gratitude to the Lord. Learn to value his bloody and wondrous work. Learn to value the physical pain he endured, the blood, the spit, Death because of you, because of me. Your selfishness and rage and deceitful lying tongue, sexual immorality and porn addiction, your, your theft and hatred, your ingratitude, your idolatry. Or these are the very nails that pierced our Lord, hanging him to the cross. Our Savior was pierced, says Isaiah 53, for your transgressions and crushed for your iniquities. Forsake the world, count all your richest gains as loss for the sake of Christ, and in so doing be found in him, having a righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is the gospel message that heretics and cultists totally reject, and that our world sees as cosmic child abuse, and that our hearts are so dulled to a punishment for sin we didn't bear, and a righteousness that's not our own. But Christian, when we look to a text like Philippians 3, we must realize this fact, very important. The benefits in Christ are not what is most precious in the Christian life. The benefits of Christ are not what is most precious to us. Justification, sanctification, glorification, all these are but a means to the ultimate end. Knowing Christ is our aim and our purpose and our eternity. All these other things are so that we can savor Christ for eternity. And this is what churches have forgotten about. This is what American Christianity has lost, that salvation is not chiefly about us. It's not that we just get to exist and selfishly entertain ourselves with harps for all eternity. And so many wrongly think that just getting people across the line into heaven is the most important thing. And so by any means possible, we manipulate and convince people to just say they accept Jesus so they don't go to hell. But do you know what eternal life is? Do you know what Jesus said it was? John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent Eternal life is this, to know him and to behold him and to love him because he is worth knowing and loving and delighting in. If you don't want Jesus for eternity, then you don't want eternal life. If we don't value knowing Christ for eternity, why would we value him above the world now? And if that's the case, if we don't value Christ over the world now, we are no Christian. Who have I in heaven but you, O Lord, is what David said. I'm gonna close today with two parables from the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 13, verse 44, starts by saying this, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Second parable, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Christ is that pearl of infinite value. 
Many in our day say that they highly esteem Christ, but they will seldom lift a finger to obtain him. Thomas Watson, a Puritan writer, wrote this. If Christ would drop as a ripe fig into their mouth, they would be content to have them. But they will not put themselves through too much trouble to get him. If we are prizers of Christ, then we will part with our dearest pleasures for him. With what scorn and contempt they put on the Lord Jesus, who prefer a damning pleasure before a saving Christ. Christianity has forgotten its Savior and once more is in dire need of reformation. We must recapture the centrality of Scripture so that day by day we are prodded to an unceasing reverence and love for Christ. Church, lose everything for him. Lose your life for him. Give up your life to attain him. Has his bride lost interest? Are we like Israel? Do we play the harlot running after other loves? Be purged of worthless idols, whether money or jobs or friends or TV shows or political talk shows or your zealous self-identity as a Christian of Christians. Let them drop to the bottom of the sea for Jesus. Oh, that we would be able to sing this song with genuineness. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Father, we are so hardened and our hearts have been so filled with meaningless things. Spirit of God, lift up our eyes to behold the excellencies of Christ break into our hardened heart. Give us a view of his greatness. Lord, may we learn every day more and more about his excellencies and greatness through your revelation in Scripture. Father, help us to recognize that a Christian is not just the person who says, yeah, I I think I'm a Christian. Lord, help us to recognize that following you costs our life. We can either have the world or we can have your son. Lord, give us hearts that desire your Son. Cleanse us, rebuke us, sharpen us, sanctify us, Lord. And may you make it so that we love and delight in the idea of beholding the glory of the Son for all eternity. Grow our hearts' affection for him. Grow our hearts' delight in him. And lessen our hearts' delight for worldly, meaningless things. We love you, Lord, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.